Hi, and welcome back to the Couch Wolves podcast. I'm your host, Molly Sumridge, and I'm so excited today because, well, one, I have Katie here as a co-host, um, our trainer, Katie Brennan. Why don't you say hi for a second, Katie? Oh, that was Keenan <laughs> Barking, if you heard Barking. So oh, so cool. we have another little co-host. Yeah, yeah. Keenan. <laughs> and, <I'm, laughs> and I'm super excited about our guest today. Uh, our guest is Lindsay Gallagher, and Lindsay is a veterinary behavior resident in Boston, Massachusetts. She's an awesome member of our community, and oh my gosh, Lindsay, there's so much we want to talk to you about, but why don't you go ahead and just say hi. Hello, everyone. I'm really happy to be here. Lindsay, you've been such an asset to our, you know, our community. You provide such awesome information um, in our Facebook group. I know, you know, in in the short time we've had in person to to chat, you've just been such a wealth of knowledge, and you're so not just intelligent, and you know your shit about the topics, you know, that 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 are at hand. You are compassionate, and you understand to a certain extent how owners are trying to approach behavior and their dogs and things like that and and that's what makes you you know so awesome to talk to so thank you for joining us today oh you're just the sweetest you're making me blush over here oh my gosh that's too nice <laughs> i really appreciate you saying that oh you're very welcome it's it's well earned so as we spoke before when we were trying to plan this podcast there are so many things we can talk about um and I, i'm going to go through some of them today but if we don't have time I, i'm sure we will have you back so I think the thing that's burning that we'll start this, this awesome discussion on is the, the scary thing everyone sends a client to a veterinary behaviorist for, and that's medicine, that's medication, pharmacology. Um, oh, can you sort of I, jump into that, how you're, you, you sort of are involved and, and what goes into the decision-making? You know, is it a last resort? Go ahead and jump in. Sure, yeah. Um, I definitely would say that it's far from a last resort, and I would so much rather someone come to me so that I can say, hey, I don't think you need medication at this point, um, or just come to me really early and have me say, you know what, I really do think you're going to make more progress faster um, if you if we add medication as part, only one part of this whole treatment plan. Um, I don't want people to be kind of struggling at home for months or years, even sometimes, um, when hopefully we could have just done a little bit of a tweak and they could have made a lot more progress. So I definitely don't think it's a last resort. Um, some of the things that um, I talk to my clients about in terms of how I make a decision of when medication would be useful, um, one is if the dog is not able to take reinforcements around, say, the thing that's making them stressed or aggressive or fearful, if they're not willing to take reinforcements, be it food, treats, whatever, we can't treat it. So that's really a clear cut reason for me. Um, another one is if the dog escalates so quickly from like zero to 60 and the owner has no second to kind of give them a cue to redirect them, um, then we also are really gonna struggle with treatment. Um, another one is if their recovery time is super long. So like after again, they're, I'll probably just say like trigger a lot, um, fill in the blank for what the issue is. Sure. But if um, after their trigger, they continue to show signs of being stressed or fearful, uh, even in the absence of it, then medication is also good for them usually because it can help them uh, get back to kind of a baseline, recover a lot quicker. Um, yeah, those, or, or 
Well, also, if a dog is just panicking so much to the point where, like, they are putting themselves in danger, they're putting, like, you know, that they're going to uh, pull the leash, like, right out of their owner's hand and run into traffic, um, or if they're in, you know, their severe separation anxiety and they're breaking out of windows um, and jumping off the second story, you know, balcony and they're going to hurt themselves, that's another great reason. I mean, that um, definitely, I would hope they would get to me way before then. Um, but those are other reasons. If I'm worried someone's going to get hurt, then that could be a reason too. Um, and then I think that a lot of people have a lot of fears um, about medication. And I have to, you know, talk clients through that a lot. Um, so some things I wish more people would know is one is if your dog is a zombie on a medication, it is the wrong medication. Your dog should not be a zombie. Your dog should not be not your dog in a, in a bad way. We, we might like not your dog in a more positive way. Hey, they're so much better. But if it's not your dog, if it, you know, their personality is different, then again, it's the wrong medication. Like that is not my goal in any way, shape or form. So know that that's not right. And you shouldn't have to um, kind of suffer through that. So if that is happening, please, please tell me. It's usually where I tell my clients. Um, and uh, in general, I mean, I kind of run people through the side effects, um, which usually are pretty mild. Um, and I tell them, too, like, if they're having severe side effects, if they're having blowout diarrhea when we start this medication, you'll hear me say this a lot, it's the wrong medication. And we have a lot of options. And I hope also people know that if one thing doesn't work, uh, know that, you know, that's, that's not abnormal. And we have a lot of other things that we can try and try to, uh, to kind of not be discouraged by that. Quick question. How many, I mean, just off the top of your head, how many different medications are there? Because I know most clients I talk to, they go to their vet and they get fluoxetine, aka Prozac, and maybe Trazodone um, or Xanax, but that's about it. So can you just sort of talk about for just a half a second, you know, how many medications there are out there and maybe what some of them might be called that we realize we take, some people right. anyway. yeah. Yeah, so let's see. So the SSRIs I usually use um, or use a lot, fluoxetine, Prozac, uh, sertraline, and paroxetine. Paroxetine being Paxil, sertraline being uh, Zoloft. Ah. So there's three right there. Mm -hmm. And then there's another class called TCAs or tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, clomicom or clomipramine is the mm -hmm. generic. That's a common one uh, in dogs because clomicom is uh, FDA approved for dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, amitriptyline is another one. Um, I would say that those uh, five are pretty much uh, my mm -hmm. go-to uh, daily medications. Um, and then for kind of more what I call as-needed or situational mm -hmm. medications, let's say we've got uh, trazodone, gabapentin, clonidine, um, Alprazolam or Xanax. Um, so that's what, four right mm -hmm. there. Those are probably the ones that I, oh, um, Buspirone or Buspar, um, mm -hmm. is another medication that we use pretty commonly. Um, and then there's also the nutritional supplements, um, that sometimes will be a part of my plan. And let's see there, we've got, uh, Solquin, Zilkeen, Anxetine. Uh, those are three pretty good ones. Um, sometimes adding in pheromones too. So, what are we at? We're at. <laughs> oh, yeah. I lost count a while ago, but that's great. Yeah. And then another thing is sometimes different medications work better in combo. So you kind of have those are the individuals, but then once you start combining them in different ways, you can get different effects. Wow. So 
our, our kind of options really do increase uh, a lot when you start doing little cocktails. It's amazing because, I mean, I, I can't, speaking of can't counting, I can't count the number of clients I've had that said, we tried meds. And that usually meant, yes, that usually means that, yeah, they tried a medication and you're right. A lot of times the first one isn't the right one and they gave up and for innumerable numbers of reasons. What about you, Katie? What's your been experience when with your clients and and medications? Yep. Same. Be like, yeah, I tried Xanax. I'm like, okay, (laughs) more, you can do more. Um, yeah, that's been my experience as well with a lot of people. And, uh, those who who tend to go the route of a veterinary behaviorist, which we should definitely talk about differences of things too. Another talking point for, this, for this episode. Um, those who do go the route of a vet behaviorist um, oftentimes will come with cocktails, which I find very interesting. Versus someone who went to their regular veterinarian during you know a regular kind of checkup appointment or just an off the side kind of check in thing. Um, who are given maybe one thing, and usually, usually again, usually, just my experience, um, it's been one, one type of thing. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it'll be one thing plus, like, Xylokine is a big one, because like, mm-hmm. you can order that on Amazon, it's pretty good. So, um, so usually that's what I've experienced as well. There will be a cocktail with the vet behaviors, which I find very interesting, whereas with the regular veterinarian, there isn't, but obviously, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about the differences there, mm-hmm. just watch and... He's an expert on what? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's been my, my experience. Absolutely. I mean, even my own dogs has been super interesting because, you know, we, we, you know, Katie and I are in a very privileged position having such a wealth of amazing experts to talk to. And um, just my own dog, Tracker, she's going to be 15, and it's not exactly behavior. I didn't think it was, but her mobility went to hell the last month. And all of a sudden the vet's like, okay, well, we're going to use a painkiller and gabapentin. And now she's walking around like nobody's business. And I was like, especially in the last like 48 hours, it took a week or so, but now she's walking like nothing ever happened. And I'm like, how is this possible? But yeah, yeah, painkiller wasn't doing it. You added in the gabapentin and boom, the neurological symptoms that I would never in a million years have assumed she was experiencing. I mean it's amazing it's like i got i'm getting all weepy because i'm like oh my god i got my senior dog back like maybe she isn't on the way out so it's amazing how screwed up our culture can be about our paranoia and our hesitation to try things that we're not experts in and i understand you know we have to be cautious consumers but we also have to have some trust in our experts and and just how much better our animals lives can improve um one question I did have, and this goes into more my expertise is doing BMOD for dogs that are experiencing either a great deal of fear or a great deal of expressive aggression. Are there medications that can make um, a dog more likely to inflict a bite? Any behavioral medication or supplement can um, have a paradoxical effect. Okay. And that's where the thing that we want to get better gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is going to happen, I usually within the first couple of weeks. Okay. Really, I tend to see it around the two-week mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll tell owners to be on the lookout usually around the first month. Okay. Um, and I say to them, if it's going to happen, it's going to be obvious. You're going to know. It's not going to be you being there like, mm, is this? No, it's going to be obvious. Okay. Um, and when we stop the medication, the problem's going to go away. Mm-hmm. So we're going to know that it was indeed a paradoxical effect. Yeah. Um, 
if it it's not going to happen six months down the road of being on this medication. So if something changes six months down the road and we're now aggressive in a new situation or something like that, um, it's not the medication having a paradoxical effect. Or some people also say disinhibited aggression, mm -hmm. um, same kind of idea. It's uh, Yeah, again, it's going to happen quickly and you're going to know when we're going to stop the medication. That means it's the wrong medication and things are going to go back to normal. Um, so yeah, I would say in that sense of having a paradoxical effect or disinhibited aggression, uh, that could happen. Um, yeah. That's super helpful because I know I that's one of the, the walls that you face as owners will have said. I've heard that some behavioral medications can make a dog more aggressive. And I can understand in cases where the dog has already inflicted a bite or it's very hard to manage contact in some households, there's an apprehension there. But explaining to them what you just said that you would know and, you know, this isn't like all of a sudden you wake up tomorrow with a serial killer in your house that no, in fact, you would see things getting worse and it would not be four years down the line and it would not be tomorrow that there's, there's certain windows. It's very, very helpful. Definitely. And, and every time when I see a patient, uh, whether I put them on medication usually or not, mm -hmm. if they're having aggression issues, then I do place and put a lot of safety rules mm -hmm. in place. Sure. And I do tell owners, Hey, for the next couple of weeks while we're doing this, let's just be extra cautious. You know, let's not put them in situations mm -hmm. that, like, say, a bite could potentially happen. We're going to do that this way, that way, um, again, yeah, until we kind of know how the how they're going to respond to the medication. Um, so I hope that people, um, you know, can, at least with me, feel, feel like they can say, oh, this is what I'm worried about. How are we going to stay safe in this situation? Make a plan and then feel confident with that plan going forward. And just know that they can keep themselves safe and everybody safe um, in that period until we figure out the dog's response. Fabulous. Katie, what were you saying you wanted to uh, add? I want to make sure we don't miss what you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, well, there were, there were a couple things, and Molly, you might have the one in mind anyway coming up. But uh, the first would be kind of, I guess, the not the difference per se in a veterinarian versus a veterinary behaviorist, but I guess kind of the extra steps that you take, you know, Lindsay, that you have taken after your formal schooling to become a veterinarian, because you are an actual veterinarian, <laughs> um, to then kind of get the title veterinary behaviorist. Um, what are the extra steps you take and, you know, kind of what do you go through and what, how do you get the knowledge that you get that extra kind of above, you know, <laughs> above the, the base knowledge? Yeah. Extra letters. Yeah, you get more. You get extra, title. Extra. I don't know. I think it's like a sprinkling of extra awesomeness, but you know. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I work hard. I work hard for my letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, like you said, there's your every veterinarian, um, and every veterinarian is allowed to prescribe uh, behavior medications. Um, Veterinarians differ in the amount of behavior training they get in school. Some schools have really great behavior classes and rotations and things like that. Other schools aren't as lucky and don't have them. So that can kind of determine the general practice veterinarian's uh, comfort level with treating behavior problems. Um, and then, so like I said, everybody can go with what they're comfortable doing and what medications and combos they're comfortable doing. Then that next step um, to be a veterinary behaviorist is you have to go through a residency. And so that's what I'm working on currently. And the residency has a lot of steps. I have to see a certain number of cases of behavioral cases and they have to be 
pretty well documented. They're all under the supervision of my mentor, who is Dr. Carlos Syracusa. He is a boarded veterinary behaviorist. Uh, he's at UPenn right now, so I work under him. Um, in the beginning, I work directly with him, and then I can see cases remotely and then consult with him on them, but I do still have to do that. Um, then, in addition to all the cases, I have to read so many textbooks. I have to read all of the papers that have pretty much ever been published <laughs> the old ones that we now maybe have, you know, have new information about, the old information and new. Um, I have to publish a research paper on behavior. I have to publish some case reports, so it's kind of contributing to sharing of knowledge about, you know, treatments and effect on individual cases and how they went. Um, I have to take a big test at the end of all this to basically prove that you did learn some things about behavior. Um, and that, oh, I also have to go to um, a conference once a year with other veterinary behaviorists. Again, kind of sharing knowledge, everybody uh, learning together. And then, yeah, after I take a test and pass, and then I get to say, <laughs> call myself a veterinary behaviorist. Those are the steps. That's wow. cool. I think that helps too to, to sort of demonstrate um, just that the, the extra step that you need to go through to mm -hmm. really kind of harness, harness all this knowledge, put it into one thing, and be able to come up with these individualized plans for mm -hmm. all these different clients you're going to see. Um, and the other thing I had sort of related to that, and obviously I'm biased because I'm on one end of it, kind of, and, you know, you're on the other end of it. Um, well, and Molly, too, we are kind of on one end. Um, so could you talk a little bit, too, about, you know, you don't have to go into super detail about the plans you give, um, but I know Molly and I have seen plans for veterinary behavior because we work with them, um, with clients, and could you go a little bit into kind of what you tell people and, and this relationship between um, the vet behaviorist and a trainer? Trainer, trainer. I put quotes around trainer only because, yeah. Well, yeah, there's trainer, there's behavior consultant, and there's this, and there's that, and oh my God, exactly. I mean. Yeah, so I guess, could you go in a little bit into what your plans sort of entail, um, and and how those clients then could also benefit from the training side of it and seeing a professional on that end of things? Yeah, definitely. Um, and too, since you even mentioned like the trainer, behavior consultant, et cetera. Um, I want to touch on that too. So at least obviously I am a veterinary behaviorist, so I'm biased. But the thing that I do really love about the field of veterinary behavior is getting that full, complete package. I can assess for those medical problems that in a lot of my patients, there is a medical component. Um, you know, whether it's something that's just bugging them, a, a hip pain, that is contributing to their aggression or their reactivity, where I had a case of an ear infection being a large part of um, this senior dog that was up all night, and the owner was thinking that it was cognitive dysfunction or dementia, and we, you know, I kind of did two at first, so I, but I did that physical exam, and was like, I think your dog has a raging ear infection. <laughs> and so like those are the things that I've seen behaviors pick up, um, and I that was what got me interested in it. I was so amazed um, at the medical things that behaviorists caught uh, that were able to really help people. Um, so, so yeah, I have that, that, that my primary veterinary uh, side of me, that physical exam, that understanding their, their medicine and anatomy, um, plus the ability to prescribe and use medication. 
plus that be pure behavior side of that behavior modification, desensitization, um, training side, et cetera. So I really consider myself to be the full package. <laughs> you are the full package. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, wait, what was, what was the original question that I got? Uh, oh, the plans, the plans. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, definitely different veterinary behaviorists do them a little bit differently. Um, I always kind of start with those safety guidelines just to make, you know, keep everybody safe. Um, I then, I really right now kind of send out the full plan, like A to Z pretty much, um, for my clients, um, and then just sort of help them work through it. Some, I, some behaviorists I know will kind of say, all right, here's steps A through D, let's do this first then let's get you back in and see how you're doing. Then let's do, you know, the next couple of steps via the next appointment. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of a little bit of different style, I guess. Um, and I really try to work my plans through starting kind of with the stuff that people can put into place today. The stuff of let's put out this fire, let's triage the situation, let's put a splint on this um, or a tourniquet on this and stop the bleeding. Let's stop this from getting worse. And again, it's things people can do right away. Um, you know, kind of, uh, a lot of it is avoidance of the situation, but helping people know how to avoid um, that situation and kind of hopefully giving them a little bit of confidence that they can get their dog out of this situation. Um, then while they're doing that, while they're kind of, uh, again, preventing things from getting worse through the, through avoidance and keeping everybody safe, having them work on cues uh, in, you know, teaching cues in the house. So like a look cue, getting your dog to look at you. I use touch a lot, a nose target cue. Um, look and touch are really big for me or a go-to cue, like a go-to-bed mm -hmm. place mat type of thing. So I have people work on that. That's the kind of install the software into your dog's brain phase of this whole treatment plan. Um, and then the third phase is really putting those cues into action and putting them into action uh, to help kind of, again, manage the situation that they're having, but at the same time, using those cues as part of the desensitization, part of the behavior modification, long-term treatment. Because uh, as they're kind of say, doing a look cue, say, around other dogs, then they, that they have been trained to do with positive reinforcement. They love the look cue. They love doing it. Uh, they do it around other dogs. They get a treat for doing look. Oh, every time dogs come around, we play my favorite look game. Hey, I really hope another dog comes around the corner so that we can do the fun stuff again. And so again, long-term, that's doing uh, that's part of your desensitization and counter-conditioning uh, to the dog's triggers. And that's what's going to get us a lot of the long-term um, treatment. Awesome. Does that, does that kind of answer your question? Or do you have any uh, kind of more specific questions about how those plans go? No, I think that's awesome, um, and I, I think the fact that you did outline, you know, there are going to be differences between vet behaviorists and vet behaviorists, it's just, you know, kind of the nature, just like there's mm -hmm. differences between me and Molly sometimes, even though we think very, very similarly, <laughs> and we have very similar letters after our names, similar, not the same, um, but I guess the other question I had is, um, how often, how frequently do you also recommend that people uh, who are seeing you or another veterinary behaviorist work with a trainer? And what should they look for in that trainer? Yeah, so I like to develop my plans and handouts and everything and my resources so that I would hope they would make enough sense to the owner that they could 
try to teach these things and implement these things um, at home. Because I know that, you know, there's just some people that aren't, even if I said I highly recommend you do work with a trainer, there's just some people that can't, um, right. or just not going to work for them. So I hope that they understand um, my resources first. But definitely, I do find that there's a lot of cases where they're able to be a lot more successful to kind of have that person who has experience in this watching them and saying, oh, if you deliver the treat this way a little bit differently, or if you hold the leash this way, it's really good to have that person watching you um, and kind of helping you with the mechanics. Um, we, so when I was at doing behavior in Philly, we did have trainers that we worked with very frequently that I knew really well that I would refer to pretty much every time. <laughs> Here in Boston, yeah. I'm still working on sort of developing my core trainers that I know I can refer to that I'm comfortable with. Um, I have one person already that I am referring to, so she's been really great and helpful. Um, yeah, no, trainers, is, again, it does, as for me as a behaviorist, I have to be careful that I'm going to refer to somebody that I completely trust um, and isn't going to do something that I know is going to be detrimental to my patient. So that's really important for me. But yeah, it is, it is really good. And oh, and the other thing is, I because veterinary behaviorists sometimes do things differently, because trainers sometimes do things differently, I'm totally happy to adjust my plan. Like if I do, you know, look or touch this way, but hey, I've been, my client's been working with the trainer and we've been doing it that way and it's working really well. I'm like, hey, oh, great, good. Like, let's do that. That's totally great. Um, and so, and I always tell people like, hey, you can bring the plan to your trainer uh, to have them help you implement it or have them contact me, let me know what they're, they've been working on with you. I'm so happy to like work together as a team. The more people we have, um, yeah, all on the same page and doing the same thing and, and working together, the better for the my patient, definitely. That actually brings up exactly what I was hoping to ask you too, is how do you work with, and I know again, every veterinary behavior is different. How do you collaborate with veterinarians where maybe you're not accessible to a client and they really need a little bit of help in the pharmacological expertise? Yes, so that's a great question. Um, I do vet-to-vet consults. So any veterinarian is welcome to see a patient, collect history, collect information, do their own physical exam about their patient, and then if they have questions that they want to bring me, I then speak to the vet directly. Um, we consult, I give my assessment or my recommendations on whatever aspect of it they needed help with, and then uh, that veterinarian can then take that information and implement it themselves. So, like, I can't, if I don't have what's called the veterinary patient or veterinary client relationship with that person, I've never met them, I've never seen their dog, I live in a different state, I can't legally make a recommendation to them, but their veterinarian can. So as long as we do it that way, that the recommendation is coming directly from the veterinarian, that's totally fine. Um, and it basically works out that I just charge the veterinarian per however long the consult takes. So like, I just charge the veterinarian for the time, and the veterinarian can then charge the client for the behavior consult fee, whatever that was, um, and then that's how it works. I'm happy to do that for any veterinarian in the U.S. And how can, uh, I guess, how would you recommend if a pet owner is not convinced that their vet is, if their vet is just recommending one drug and that's it and that's their repertoire, how can they bridge that conversation and say, 
hey, you know, I, I, I know this veterinary behaviorist and I think they're awesome. Not to say you're not awesome, but how do you like encourage them to maybe reach out and look at some other options without necessarily having to quit their vet and start fresh somewhere else because they're not necessarily getting the support they think they need? I think that I would just do my own little research and finding, because I'm not the only veterinarian or veterinary mm-hmm. behavior resident that does this. There's others that do. Too. Mm-hmm. A lot of already boarded people do these veterinary oh, yeah. consults. So I'd probably do a little bit of research and find one uh, that has a service like that. And I would just kind of say exactly what you said. Like, hey, I really appreciate your willingness to even touch this situation um, and you're, you know, that you have that knowledge to do that. I was wondering if we could get a little bit of extra, you know, information. I found this cool resource. What do you think about this? And a lot of, a lot of veterinarians um, would be happy. Like if you brought that mm-hmm. uh, resource directly to them, I'm, I can't imagine one would be like, heck, heck no. I know everything, I, I know everything about behavior. Uh, I think a lot of veterinarians admit that, there's not as much behavior in vet school as there should be or as we wish there was. Uh, but just, I think probably a lot maybe don't even know that this vet-to-vet consult thing is a resource that they could potentially use. And if you make their lives easy by kind of just, you know, offering it to them, I think I think they would probably be happy to do that. As I would if it was another kind of, if it was they're like, oh, there's a cardiologist vet-to-vet resource. Could you do that? I'd be like, oh, wow, cool. Thanks, definitely. I think my my interest here is is definitely not to bash vets because I think vets are amazing and my life would not be as amazing and wonderful as it is without them. Um, I have, however, come across professionals that are very comfortable in where they are in their careers and I don't think are interested in expanding their knowledge. Um, and I think it's that's unfortunate. They are definitely not the norm. I I just have def I have had amazing wonderful clients who have been sort of stuck. Uh, in those situations. And sometimes it is the case that, yeah, then maybe you need to work with a different professional who is working, willing to collaborate. On the flip side, I have had fantastic relationships with some vets where I've even been in a conference call like this with the vet, the vet behaviorist and myself discussing, well, this is what the vet saw in the clinic. This is what the behaviorist thinks. And this is what I've seen in the home. So that we're getting a full, complete picture for the client and discussing what is actually reasonable if we're concerned the owner is incapable of, say, let's say, doing certain things that would be in a normal management plan or a normal training plan. So I do agree that I think collaboration is the key. There's so many different sets of eyes. There are so many different, you know, ways of of doing this sort of work. And I think, you know, as much as you said, like, oh, yeah, there needs to be more behavior, you know, uh, medicine accessible to vets in general. There's something to be said for specialties. I mean, there is a reason that humans see psychiatrists, the therapist versus your eye, ears, nose and throat doctor, because, you know, we want somebody who does know, oh, well, yeah, no, this new drug just came out and this does this. And, oh, we found out that, yeah, you know, when we mix this drug and this drug, this can happen. I mean, that's huge. And I can't expect every veterinarian to know all that. So, no, I think you're valuable. Absolutely. And I think that's too. I think at some point you do have to respect the SAGP veterinarian's uh, comfort level mm-hmm. with the whole situation. Yeah. And if they still, even knowing like, oh, I can consult with this behaviorist, it's still, for some of them, an uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. that they feel that now they are managing this case of, say, aggression that they might think or feel is beyond mm-hmm. what they're 
they're comfortable kind of liability wise taking on mm-hmm. and I can totally understand a veterinarian feeling that way um and then in, in that case potentially only wanting you to to seek full consult with that with that um mm-hmm. behaviorist because yeah to kind of to kind of implement half of a plan uh yeah, sometimes it's sometimes it's not a great situation, and I, there's there's things that it say in veterinary medicine that if you asked me to do, I would say I cannot do that for you. I am not comfortable doing that. I am not the person to do it. So I think if your veterinarian does say that, you kind of have to respect them and their decision and their comfort level. I think there's something really awesome too about what you're saying there that I'm hearing, and if I've heard it wrong, please say so. Um, that like you said, there's even cases where you're like, whoa, this is out of my wheelhouse, and that's a you know, this is a, this is the couch rules podcast. So we're not going to talk too much about professional things, ideally, although I do run off of my rants, but it's a reminder to any professional that we should not be everything to everyone and reach outside of our comfort zones and out of our education levels, just because we think we're the only one who might be able to help this individual. And you're right. I, I think it's huge. Yeah. I think it's huge when vets say, Oh, this is not my expertise. You need a specialist. When you say, whoa, this is not my expertise. Try my colleague, you know, same for us saying like, I don't, I don't do separation anxiety anymore. I don't, I I've learned, I do not have, I know some basic stuff. I know what can help mild cases, but I am not equipped um, for the super duper complicated calls and yeah, that sort of thing. And I know Katie, you have your preferences. So you've, you've sent me a oh, couple yeah. of, Oh, hell no cases. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. This is not- <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Molly Land. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we sent one or two back and forth. I was like, mm, and you were like, mm, and then we just went go that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happens. Happens too. And yeah. then you think even outside. <laughs> I, I definitely want to jump in just for a sec too, though, because I want to sort of play off both of you. And I had a great experience when they added a new vet to um, my veterinary hospital. And I had not worked with her. I usually go to my go-to vet. And I had a sort of urgent-ish call that I kind of wanted to get in and not wait until the day when my vet was back in. And so I went in and I realized, you know, this vet has never met my dog. And the dog in particular has got a lot of veterinary sensitivities due to uh, a crappy experience he had once at a vet's hospital, which happens not to point fingers. Just some dogs have traumatizing experience. Um, And she was awesome because I called ahead and I said, look, He's a very sensitive dog. He can have really hard, you know, he could be really hard to examine. I think we should talk briefly about, you know, should we do pre-visit meds or whatever, but we need Yay. to talk about this. And um, she was amazing on the phone. She's like, great. I've got a couple of options. What does he need? What should we do together? And it was, well, we're going to do muzzle work. I said, he's got a great chin rest restraint, you know, all of this other stuff. She said, great. I trust you to do all that since you two have practiced that, you know, these fear-free and, and, you know, low stress handling protocols. We did do some pre-visit meds. Um, and we were able to, he had an ear hematoma that we had to drain. So you can imagine a dog that does not want to restrain having his ear drained. And we were pretty, yeah. And we can say we had a pretty successful visit, um, based on all of that pre-visit work to advocate for what was going to happen is I went, okay, new vet, we need to establish all this before I bring this poor little dog in there. Cause you know, those, those meds, and I'm sure you could talk about that briefly need a little time to take effect too. It's not like I can just walk in and he'll get some sort of shot in the butt and he'll be doped up in 10 seconds. So yeah, it was, it was a lot to think about and a lot of pre-planning to say, this is going to be what he needs. What, what are your thoughts on that, Lindsay? I love that so much. I, <laughs> 
wish that more people would call us ahead of time before I even saw their pet. Actually, I had a case very recently where someone did say, it's really difficult for me to get my cat into the carrier to get into the vet. I said, well, thank you for telling me that because we're going to make your life so much easier. We're going to give you those pre-medicine medications and I'm happy to do that because um, I do see a lot of, um, right, so I also see general practice cases and I do see a lot of where people know that their dog or cat is really scared of the vet and uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't know that you can have that conversation ahead of time, but you can. And so thank you so much for bringing that up. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, it is. It's, it's hard to remember. And I, I, I try and bring my muzzle. I try and bring cookies. I try and, you know, I have my own little mental pre-kit. It's funny. Um, a bunch of trainers uh, in this area meet with a different veterinary behaviorist every cup, you know, like twice a year. And we talk about stuff. And one of the things we talk about is our, you know, visit kit. And, you know, there are some people there that bring their own yoga mat with a, with a stand stay, or they have a, a stand bowl or, you know, where the dog stands and, and platforms on that or stations on that. You know, we all have our kits and we try and get clients on board. And I know that they're not necessarily going to, going to sign up for the whole, um, the whole shebang, but it, it is, I think you're right. The first step is just to be comfortable enough and have a comfort. You should be comfortable enough with your caretakers to say, to be able to say out loud, my animal's needs are this. I mean, you would yeah. do that for like your parent, right? If your parent was going right. into a nursing home, you'd say they need these things and, and to, you know, do the same ad because he, cause like you said, 99% of hospitals are going to say, great, let's accommodate versus fight with you, lose you as a client, stress out the animal, somebody get bit, legalities, you know, the whole nine yards that goes from ignoring that. Yeah. And yeah. definitely with the fear-free, I don't know if you guys have heard of fear-free. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, good. No, I'm one of those um, certified professionals and all that. And I know there's, low, uh, what, Sophia Yen's low stress handling, and there's a few yep. different, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I think with the fear-free um, movement kind of being up and coming, a lot of people are more aware of this can be a thing, and there's, hospitals that are fear free certified with veterinarians and techs that are fear free certified so if you are uh looking for say like a new vet or something uh you can always go to the fear free website and try to find one on there of people that have done these certifications um you know i will say there's certainly there's being certified and then it's same with with anything you know there's being certified and there's application yeah. sometimes application is really hard sometimes it takes a lot of time mm -hmm. so um you know but definitely if you're interested in doing like a planning kind of situation um if your vet is not doesn't do those types of things as much um potentially finding one that does fear free practices even if they're not uh fear free certified could really help and kind of back to the whole uh it's not a la medication is not a last ditch effort thing for veterinary visits medication like pre-visit veterinary pre-visit uh medications for veterinary visits is not a last ditch effort either. Like we should not be waiting until the dog is trying to bite every single person the second he walks in the door, or we shouldn't wait until like we have to like manhandle this dog to say, oh, that's the dog that needs medication. But you know what? Like the dog that's maybe, you know, timid and, and hiding under the chair, those those pets would really benefit from medication too. You know, we want them to feel better about this situation. Um, we really don't want them to escalate in their level of fear, um, but really just helping those pets deserve to feel more comfortable with the vet too, even if they're not trying to bite people. 
Yeah, no, and I think this is a PSA to, to support you guys is owners got to step up and say something. I have gotten way too many clients who've said that their dog has nailed a vet staff member, and I've said, why didn't you bring the muzzle? Why didn't you, why didn't you yeah. do the exercises we talked about? Oh, well, we thought that they knew what to do, but they don't. They don't know your dog. They get to spend 15 minutes with your dog once, twice, three times a year at worst if there's been something wrong. Like, they don't know. They don't know, and you don't want our breeds come with enough stigma. You don't need to add to it, you know, not to, to point fingers, but for every Central Asian, for every Akita, for every Chow, for every Tibetan Mastiff that goes in and nails a tech, you just hurt our breed's reputation. For every Sheba that screams its heart out on a table and defecates, you just, not just scared, you know, we're responsible for advocating for your pet. That's another black mark that makes a vet go, oh, crap, another Sheba's on the schedule. So, I mean, that's what I got. When I got my first Sheba, I walked into my vet's office. His, his clinic is, was in his home. You know, he'd been our veterinarian for like 30 years, well before I was ever born. He, I walk in and he goes, why did you get one of those? Were the first <laughs> words out of his mouth. And I'm so proud of my little puppy. And to think how, where, how much my heart sunk, you know, what did I do wrong? So, you know, it's so important for us as primitive dog owners to stack the deck, you know, in the vet's favor, to stack the deck in the tech's favor and, you know, to do whatever, you know, we, we know how to do to make our animals most successful. Well, that and speaking of legalities, because again, animal control, um, mm-hmm. oh gosh. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things too, you know, your dog has to see a vet. They're going mm-hmm. to see a vet. At some point in their lives, again, hopefully not super often, and hopefully they're well enough, but they're going to have to see a vet. Mm-hmm. So why not, again, just stack this deck in your favor mm-hmm. and just practice these things, work with them, work with your vet, work with the practice you go to. When Yari was eight weeks old, he was allowed to run around in, like, the one back room, and all the techs were, like, handing him and his brother <laughs> cookies, and they were, like, roaming around and having this great playtime. And, you know, it just kind of, again, we were, we were fortunate that we were allowed to do that, um, but, you know, just kind of helped to start this early on great relationship mm-hmm. with, with him and, and my vet and any vet now who loves. So, um, but it's one of those things, too, it, you know, if your dog bites someone, right, mm-hmm. then we, we face so many more issues besides just, okay, my dog has bitten someone, so obviously their stress levels through the roof something triggered that, you know, that whole process. But now we have to think too, well, what are the legalities of this? What Mm -hmm. do I now have to do? Is my dog going to be deemed dangerous? Mm -hmm. What do I have to do? Do I have to go to court? Am I going to get sued? Like, so it's kind of one of those things like just, you know, DEFCON 5, put a muzzle on your dog. DEFCON 5, whatever, just do Mm -hmm. it. You know, ideally you will have maybe worked on muzzle training before that. But, hey, if you got to do it, you got to do it. You know, mm-hmm. you have to do what's best for your dog. And, again, we as owners know what our dogs are. We know them way better than, you know, Molly said. Like, you know, they're with this vet tech for maybe once a year for five minutes. <laughs> they, have, they have no idea. You know, the vet tech doesn't know. Um, and they shouldn't. They have so many other dogs to see. Yeah. And all sorts of species of things. So it's it's one of those, you know, to just kind of save that headache, you know. Yeah. Does your dog have to go, you know, some breeds, again, we're going to the groomer side, but yeah, they might have to get groomed. Um, so again, stack that deck, you know, try yeah. and work on this type of stuff and work on building those relationships with those professionals. So 
you can easily tell them, Hey, you know, they've been a little weird lately about X, Y, and Z, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like, you know, like Lindsay said, some of, some of the cases are medical, there's Mm -hmm. a medical component or maybe it's potentially all medical, you know? So it's, it's just, it's, it's so important to open up that dialogue for sure. Um, and it will save everybody a lot of potentially a lot of stress. And, you know, you think, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is go to a vet visit, which could already be stressful if you're stressed about your animal being unwell. Um, you're maybe stressed about, like, I know my dogs aren't, well, that guy in particular doesn't really like other dogs as much. So being in a waiting room full of other dogs is a bit stressful to him. So I might as well make the human component as, <laughs> as, as easy as I possibly can. Um, waiting rooms were invented for humans, not for dogs. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Um but yeah, so it's it's kind of dog bites. Depending on where you're at, can be very messy. They can be extremely oh, gotcha. serious. Yeah. Some do, you know. And again, it depends on your state and your local, you know, uh, you know, laws and ordinances. But some can be really, really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thought of, you know, for me, the thought of, you know, oh, I, you know, I didn't bring my muzzle for chemo, and you know, at the neurologist, they have to take her back because it's a vet hospital. Like, I have no other choice. Um, so I didn't bring my muzzle for chemo. She bit someone now what, you know? So it's like, okay, we'll practice all the things we can practice at home. I'll try and generalize them to all the people that will allow me to use them for help. And I will muzzle that dog and we're just going to hope that we're all good to go, you know? So, and again, my dog's a little, so it's, you know. <laughs> the thing I like about muzzles too is oftentimes if I can use a muzzle, I can use less restraint. Mm-hmm. You know, bear hug your dog. No, no, I can just hold the collar or something like that. But a lot of dogs, especially if, like you said, they've been conditioned to wear it, a lot of them are way more comfortable wearing the muzzle and not having to be restrained a lot. And really, people shouldn't be. I hope that people aren't embarrassed or like afraid to say these things. Like, hey, my dog needs this. My dog needs a muzzle. My dog has bitten someone. Because it makes total sense. Like, if somebody, like, you know, I met somebody that then started, like, looking in my ears and, like, looking in my eyeballs and putting pokey things yeah. in my eyeballs and then actually poked me with needles and didn't explain anything and they're a complete stranger and I have no yeah. idea what's happening, that is freaking scary. Yeah. And you better bet your ass that I would punch that person in the face. <laughs> 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 I mean, you shouldn't feel yeah. bad at all like if that has happened because it's yeah makes total oh yeah i mean to all the ladies listening yeah let's just think about the examinations we have to experience at the doctor's office if somebody didn't explain that to you it would go down like a handmaid's tale and you can see how comfortable we would be about that so yeah there'd be a lot there would be there wouldn't be many doctors willing to do that because i'm really pretty sure there'd be a a lot of ladies making sure that didn't happen again. So, yeah, I mean, we do. We got to say to ourselves, you know, uh, sorry, the academics pop in my head. I'm like, we got to have some of that little umwelt. We got to go to where the animal is and say they have a reason for the reaction. So, A, how can we make it easier on them? B, how do we advocate for them? And C, how do we help the doctor do what they got to do? Like, you guys didn't sign up to make these animals miserable. You're trying to help animals. And I'm sure it's very conflicting when you see an animal in distress while you're trying to give them an examination or in your case, at least you have tools. (laughs) Yeah. That's one thing that's been so great about now working at this place in Boston who really is fear free. The whole hospital is certified. They're really committed to it. That's awesome. 
It is so nice. Like, I don't have to hold an animal down. I don't have to force them to do things. Um, so and cool. even the one, one technician said the other day, I can't remember the last time I got scratched or bit or anything. She's like, I used to work at another hospital. I would have scratches all over mm-hmm. arms, even just from a dog, like with their, their nails. And I don't have to do that anymore. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is. Like, it really is a really nice way to practice, especially when the people are open to it. And they really are here. Like if I say, hey, you know what? Like your dog's hiding under the chair. I'm not going to pull him out by his collar and force him to get this. Like, let's get him, let's get him those pre-visit medications and, and let's get you in next week. A lot of people, almost, almost every single person, it's a rare case when they're not happy to do that for me, which is so, so wonderful. It really has made my job. I'm really pleasurable. Well, and you get to set an example because when you say, I'm not going to pull your puppy out from underneath the chair, you're telling the owner, don't rip your puppy out from under the chair when he did something <laughs> wrong. Don't force your puppy to go say hi to that stranger that he's afraid of. You know, you're setting a tone for listening to the animal and letting the animal speak for their needs and to be compassionate instead of the old fashioned suck it up. You have to experience this. I'm going to teach you who's boss, which we're so desperately trying to move away from. So I applaud that. I think it's so beautiful um, compared to other experiences I've seen. I've had, I know clients and such have had to just go, Oh, to have such a major hospital to have such a major region of 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 the northeast of new england you know giving this experience to their clients and thinking it's it's coming it's rippling i mean i chose to be a professional so i could continue to support that and i don't think there's many actual hospitals out here that have that many people who have done it but i hope it does keep rippling out and that more people get involved because i mean i hear it all the time i like um i was talking to a tech recently who was just doing the the normal venting and bitching about you know, experience of, you know, restraining some animal and how much of a jerk the animal was being. And I just smiled and nodded and I knew they needed to vent. But on the same token, I'm thinking, oh, I hope you get a chance to experience a Mm fear-free session and know how you can do this differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah, it's awesome. You know, kind of along with what Molly said, it's it's empowering. It's totally empowering that owner. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Not only is it empowering the animal and, and you're showing like, yeah, no, no, bro. Like, we're not, we're cool. We got this. Don't yeah. worry about it, little puppy. Um, but it's, you're showing that owner like, yeah, no, like, I get you. I get you and I want what's best for you and your animal instead mm-hmm. of, yeah, experiences I've had as well as I know Molly's had and we've had clients have. And, you know, it's, it's hopefully it's, I really think it's, uh, it's something that's changing and with the rest of the rest of the world (laughs) but hopefully it's really going to take root with how many you know experiences uh, positive experiences that people are getting going to these places hopefully it'll really show others that you know that it's worth it and hopefully they'll follow suit as well yeah Yeah. so question for you guys because since you guys both do a lot of the uh like chin resting in the uh uh oh what is it called cooperative care Mm -hmm. um all things how do you speak to an owner, say, or say if you're, like, training somebody to do this? Because um, a lot of times what I'll see is they'll come in with their pet, their pet's nervous, they're telling the pet to sit, 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 come, 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 stay, stay, stay. Yeah. <laughs> they're not doing any of those things because they're freaking out. <laughs> and I, it pains me to almost have them, like, spoil their stay cue or their come cue um, because they're, 
yeah, trying to utilize it like here in a vet hospital. Um, and then, you know, I've got other owners where their pet is kind of too nervous to do a sit and some owners like, well, we'll make, and I just give them treats and they say, oh, well, make him do a sit first. I'm like, well, you know, actually like, he, yeah. he gets right here at the vet hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All he needs to do is not be yeah. fearful. He doesn't need to sit yeah. for me. Um, how, how do you guys kind of talk to say people you're training um, about what to do if their dog doesn't respond to the cue or what that means or yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Um, that's, gosh, I, I gotta give you a little like mini trophy somehow. Cause that's a new one on me is rarely do people ask me, how do I respond to people whose dogs are not complying? Um, Katie, you want to start with that one? Cause I got, I got to formulate that. Ooh, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that is, that is an awesome one. So, yeah. um, so <laughs> if I get someone who is kind of saying that, so, so the way that the way that I teach, like, for example, a chin rest, um, and what I use it for is I use it as this a start button, right? Kind of heard start buttons going around here and there in the training world, and which I love. I love start buttons. Um, so I kind of use it as a start button. So And also a, a gauge of comfortability in my dog. So my dog, and again, in the, in the waiting room, I'm that weirdo doing random tricks with my dogs. So that's what I do. Yep. Um, but Me too. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also for, for for them and for me, well, obviously, tricks are, I love tricks, but um, for them, too, it's a little bit of that stress release, and they're doing things, and they don't have to just stare at these other dogs who are also staring, and, you know, and it's always, like, kind of this weird level of, <laughs> of <laughs> so So I'm already starting with that out in the waiting room. Depending on the dog, I might be starting, like, Kima. I start with that out in the parking lot, potentially even in my car before we leave the car. So it be, kind of becomes this, yes, it's it's a cute thing with, a, you know, physical, like, hand. I'm doing the gesture here. Not that anyone's seeing this on a podcast, but, you know, like a cupped hand kind of near their face. Um, once I'm presented with that and once they respond to that, then, again, I might be doing some duration or something like that. It depends on what I want at that moment or, or what I think I'm looking for, and I'm rewarding that. And to me, it becomes because they only really use the chin rest um, for cooperative care procedures. Um, you know, and so while I'm working on it at home, again, they're chin resting, I'm poking them, I'm prodding them, I'm moving legs and like all sorts of weird stuff, t touching ears and touching teeth. And so they kind of understand what that means. And I also empower them that when they want it to, if they remove their chin from my hand, it stops, it stops. Um, when they put it back, we might do some little duration and then a release to a food reward. Oh, again, when they release their chin from my hand, it stops. So it's starting to sort of empower them to almost give a yes or no. Like, yes, we can continue with this, or no, we cannot. And during the chin rest, I'll give treats as well, you know, as I'm building duration and all that. So it, it sort of becomes... Um, yeah, it becomes a really good cue for me to know what my dog is feeling and how they're feeling at that moment. Um, obviously, to, to do more creative things, like I, I put um, in the community, I was talking about Yari's recent visit that he was awesome for, and I was very proud of him um, in a new place, new vet, everything. And for him, you know, one of the people pointed out, oh, well, what about the 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 nasal, you know, like things. And I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, and I have practice with those and I practice with the empty syringes. Now I can't replicate that feeling because <laughs> I'm not going to put water in a syringe and do that to my dog. Cause that's probably <laughs> not a good plan. However, I can replicate kind of the, the 
before, right? Mm -hmm. What does it look like? A syringe coming towards my nose. Can I hold that? Can I, am I comfortable with that? Can the syringe touch my nose? So it's all about this like little by little chipping away, right? Mm -hmm. um, so again, if they remove their hand from my their, their chin from my hand, I know to stop and that's fine. The rewards kind of then taper off too if they're getting constant reward. Um, but yeah, so that's how I use it. I use it as an empowering tool. Now, again, sometimes things happen. There are emergencies. Things happen. That's why muzzles are so great, which we've already touched on. So I'm huge into that. If things just need to happen, then they need to happen. And and unfortunately, that's life um, for all of us, for people, dogs, animals, everything, right? There, there might not be a choice. So I try to empower them when there is a choice to take advantage of that. Um, but then when there is not a choice, again, the muzzles are all fun too. So that's all, you know, um, but sometimes there's not a choice and we're putting the muzzle on you and things have to just be the way they are. I'm very sorry. <laughs> and then afterwards I'll try and give you cookies. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I use it. I, I try and let people know that they should be empowered to do it. And again, it depends, you know, like the vet I went to, like I said, the other day, um, I totally, he's like, oh, you know, because we always, all my dogs are wiggly and a little bit hyper. So, um, you know, I said, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I can do a chin rest with him and you can check his teeth, his ears, you can listen to his heartbeat, you can touch him everywhere. Um, and he was like, oh, perfect, sweet. So he waited till I started the chin rest and it was great. I was like, yay, this is awesome sauce. Um, and then he's like, all right, I'm going to take him back. I'm like, what? Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. You know, um, but, you know, the vet that I'm used to, again, would be a little bit different and different dogs, different things. Um, but for the most part, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at it. I look at it for me as things do have to happen. We need to condition our dogs to accept certain things um, or even like certain things in the case of like nail trims, right? Nails are great. Um, but, you know, push comes to shove, things things happen. We need our dog. Mm -hmm. If they break their leg, they're not going to want me touching their leg. Like, that's not going to be a thing. <laughs> but, and that's why I try and make it so in the grand scheme of normal life, normal exams, normal this, at least my dog can feel empowered and comfortable. And then yeah. when the emergencies happen, hopefully I have a little bit of a backup plan of, again, a muzzle is my most, you know, the yeah. most probably widely used thing, um, where at least they can potentially be as comfortable as humanly possible, or dog, dogly possible, dogly possible, um, in that situation, uh, and hopefully not freak out. But if they, like, break a leg or something emergency happens, I can't blame them for freaking out. Yeah. So um, would you, do you think they would even try a chin rest, say, in one of those, um, do you, this has to happen to you situations or do you think you would like other situations where you're like, I know this, <laughs> they're not going to choose to do this. I'm not even going to go there. And that's, and that's, that's the hard part. And that's the hard part that, um, we sort of have to navigate. Um, and like I said, I, I, I try to use it as much as possible and I want it to be this, like, I'm not going to force my dog's head on <laughs> by hand, you know, this, this right. So that part's always going to be a choice. And if they don't have a choice, then I'm going to try my darndest to either like food to the face, like just to eat this whole cheese stick while we're doing, or have this spoon of peanut butter while we're doing this. I'm very, you know, I'm very sorry. Um, right. But it is a, it is a hard um, kind of thing to think about, right? Because it's, we want it to be positive and easy, mm -hmm. but it's, it's life. Right. You know, I, so I, I got to jump in. Cause I want, I, I don't, Oh, so I, I, sorry guys. And definitely come back if you want to say something else, but I want to get this in there cause it's the perfect spot for it. 
Um, and the reason I was, not that anybody can see this because it's a podcast, but the reason I was looking at these two lovely ladies while I was thinking is I was jotting down notes so I didn't forget. Something that was in Lindsay's question that I wanted to address was, you know, dogs that aren't complying even with sitting down to begin with. And then what if they even have a chin rest? I try and tell a client that the dog is always learning, that nothing is free. There are no freebies. Even when you go to the vet's office and get freebies, or even if you hand your dog cookies for not sitting, they're still learning. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yes, yeah, they're I'm still learning. <laughs> yes, they're <laughs> always you. learning. No worries. And they're learning to be calm. They're learning to feel safe. And I'm partially stealing some of this from Dr. Kim Samjin of... Uh, local veterinary hospital near me. So I'm smid I'm slightly stealing at least how she articulates it. I can't take all the credit. Um, but they are. They are learning to feel safe. They are learning to feel okay in the vet's office. They're learning to feel okay in the waiting room. They're learning to feel okay with me reaching for them, you know, whatever that is. And to, to sort of jump then to your question of what if they you're going to do a procedure that they know or that that is may not be not going to hold a chin rest or a sit or a stand or a station or whatever. Now, this may be different, and I don't think anyone, you know, my answer may differ from Katie's, and, and I think her answer was just fine. I don't ask for it. Because yeah. if everything is learning, I don't want my dog to say, oh, when I do a chin rest, you're draining my ear. Like when I brought the ear hematoma, we use the chin rest for everything but the draining. The draining was steak till there could not, till the steak wasn't fun anymore, and then we did an airborne restraint because his airborne restraints are his best restraints and we drained the ear and it was quick. Thank goodness. But yes, for that 32nd moment, when the, when the fluid was coming out of his ear, there was unfortunately no more um, cooperative care. <laughs> um, I, he was not in a position to have a positive learning experience. And that goes back to when is an animal learning? I don't want my animal to learn a sit, a stand, a station, a chin rest equals a really awful experience. Yes, something super unpleasant. Yes, because yeah. if I, because if he comes off of it, if he lifts his head or he gets out of his station, that should mean I'm going to stop. But right. if I can't yeah. stop, it, right. I will obliterate that trust factor. So I'm not yeah. going to ask for something that he actually has a voice in, as horrible as that yeah. sounds. I'm not going to give him a place right. to have an opinion if I'm not going to listen to it. That's such a great point. Being willing to back that up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I've done it. I've been greedy and I've asked for cues and then I've blown right through their comfort level and I've seen myself ruin behaviors. And I'm like, Molly, you're so dumb. You did that. Yeah. <laughs> it is not their fault. And I've had to repair that. So, yeah, so that's sort of, I just want to insert that right where we were. So, if yeah, you guys want yeah. to continue. And that's, that's perfect. And you articulated it. You articulated what I was attempting to say, but you articulated it much better. It's only because I got to listen to all the awesome things you were saying and pull out some really good thoughts and go, ooh, now I can, like, make a tapestry out of that and and totally stealing off of you. So trust me, I could not have articulated that had you not started talking first. Well, and then the other, the other thing about it, too, is I use an example of a broken leg. So if my dog does have a broken leg, I'm assuming that my dog will be taken back by a vet. To yeah. Then oh, yeah. That leg further and do all that stuff. So <laughs> I cannot ask for it to justify I'm not there. You know? That's I, true. I can't right. to do what I do and hold the criteria. They yeah. don't know my dog and what we've done. Yeah. So, so he was rolling around in another room and flailing and barking. Mm -hmm. He does apparently right now. Um, but yeah, so 
And that's exactly it. Molly, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. And that's, you know, if, if I'm giving them a choice, there has to be a choice. (laughs) Yeah. um, And that's why, you know, again, I kind of harp on the emergency. If it's the emergency, the unforeseen, an ear hematoma, like that doesn't happen in every dog. So that's one of the, I'm not really going to. Like, no, exactly. Ears, but that's a normal yes. thing that they're going to have to be okay with. But if, yes. they're, if you're then touching an ear that's in dire pain because of this awful ear infection or something you did not see happening, you know, could not see, yes. um, yeah, then it just, it, that's, yeah, Molly's right. Lindsay, um, remind me, isn't it in force free, we, or fear free, we call these uh, consent behaviors? I've heard that at least in the curriculum, they talk about consent-based consent-based behaviors, and in that case, if we can't wait for consent, then we probably shouldn't ask for them. I guess it's sort of how I'm remembering. I wired it when I took the course, but I don't remember if they used yeah. that in your hospital. But I I did like that idea that yes, if the animal can give and take back its consent, awesome. If they can't give back their consent. Maybe we should not be asking. Yeah, that sort of thing. And that's why I think, Molly, you talked about um, the restraint, Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, being held in restraint. And that's, I practice the restraints, too. And for those, Mm -hmm. it's more just, we're going to just work on desensitizing you to this. And Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. usually when they're used for, or for things where, like, depending on the dog for, you know, a blood drop could be, you know, they could just be a wiggly dog. I don't know. You know, they might not necessarily be super like averse to it if you practice like poking them certain ways or whatever but i'm probably not gonna do a chin rest because then if they take that chin away again what, what am i gonna do I exactly you're like well we, we still gotta do the procedure kid i'm sorry yeah Love back. yeah <laughs> exactly so, so for a lot of those two depend again depending on the dog for me some like yari is very still like a chin rest for him is great but i'll do that and then potentially have another tech restraining him you know, mm-hmm. just to, again, make sure he's not going to move because um, he can move sometimes too. Yeah, no, that's fair. I've restrained body parts while still holding a hand out for a chin. And like, it's the amazingly magical <laughs> third arm that appears out of nowhere that can give yeah. treats. It's like chin, food, back to chin, okay. you know, however you can do it. And again, for him, again, for him, I, I know the dog and I know yeah. that he's going to be fine with that. And for him, that works great for that yes. procedure that, again, we have to get every year for heartworm testing. And stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I had a client, I gave total, per- it's funny, I was called in to help assist with a pseudo fear-free just exam on a on a little fluff ball thing that the owner complained is trying to climb up the vet. And I was like, okay, well, let's go in and we're, you know, we're making the visit fun and happy. And, you know, it was, it was really there to discuss even whether that they were going to give the dog a specific vaccination because the dog was sick with something, or I don't, I don't remember all the gory details and obviously I can't go into all of them. But what I saw was that, yes, the dog puts his feet on the vet, like he's on the table, he puts his hands on the shoulders and he's giving the vet sort of kisses. And I'm like, and I said, are you cool with this? And the vet's like, yeah. And I looked at the others, I went, this is fine. We can reinforce this. In fact, um, you know, he's like, I know you want like that stark stand, that beautiful like stack yeah. on a table, right. but if Statue she's, or something. <laughs> yeah, but she's doing his heart. It's good. Like she's getting what she needs. He's, he's in a good place. Like let's, let's work with this instead of create. So it's important that an owner, I think we work with the picture they have in your head. So if you have clients coming in, they expect their dog in a stand or a sit and they expect, you know, 
these behaviors, trying to figure out if if they're just trying to see, oh, well, if their dog can sit or stand, then they're being good. And, and you know, being good is a is an important construct to an owner. Their dog should be good at the vet. Saying this is being good. This is being happy. This is all acceptable. You know, reinforcing that experience the owner's having because. Otherwise, they can think their dog is doing something wrong and and add more stress to this to the scenario. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how many owners, yeah. Lindsay, do you get that it's it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, nonstop for the next forty minutes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I definitely saw them. I definitely do. Yeah. Or even, and I there's definitely clients where I have to tell them, you know, you don't have like please don't tell him no like when or or when correct him like for not mm-hmm. sitting there like it's it's totally okay <laughs> oh yeah the down on the table where the dog tries to get up and they leash correct the, oh yeah there's there's yeah. all sorts and yeah, i mean like, yeah, it's totally fine here although i sometimes i'll uh pretty much every time i try to if they're wearing a prong collar i try to unclip it and clip it mm-hmm. to their buckle collar their harness or whatever i just you just say like i just don't want him to accidentally get pronged here yes. and I want this whole thing to be nice. The dead ring's really handy too. I've 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 moved to the dead ring, or I've clipped the dead ring and the regular ring on a prong. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to cheat to make a prong unprongable, but the owner still thinks it's all normal. Like you look like you're just adjusting the collar. I'll move it higher and everything, but I clip to the dead ring so that it doesn't it doesn't tighten. It can't. It can't. Ah. Yes. I never thought about that. Yeah, so that way I don't even have to have a confrontational yeah. discussion about it. Or, I mean, there are owners where I'm working on transition away from those tools, and I'll say, okay, we're doing great. I understand that the prong being on is an important cue for your dog, but let's attach the dead ring. And then they're uh-huh. like, oh, and then that's what we do. We talk about how that works. We clip on, and the dog is still doing everything. The proofing is still there, but there are no more corrections. The corrections uh-huh. are over. So there is, there's a lot of you know, cool ways to play with that sort of equipment. Yeah, exactly. I did have a client where he only was had a, a prong. There was nothing else to attach to this dog. So now that I know about that, I'm, I'm happy to know about that. Yeah, there's all sorts of little tricks that we have. <laughs> so I know we have much, enough material for two more at least podcasts. So I think we'll probably wrap this one up in a moment. Lindsay, do you have any other questions uh, for us or anything else you want to talk about today? You've been amazing. Yeah, um, uh, I've just had a wonderful time talking to you guys. I love chatting with you. <laughs> uh, no, so I don't really have anything to add, but I'm uh, happy and excited to do more of these because I have plenty to say about behavior. <laughs> Yay! Oh, my gosh. I think this is going to definitely be a regular thing, so that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I will make sure we put your contact info in the show notes so we don't have to explain it on here. And... Uh, we will, I'm sure, hear from you next time. So thank you, our, our awesome community, for listening. If this is your first time joining in our podcast, we've got about five or more of these, and we plan on having them more regularly. I'm sorry we've been absent for quite a few months, but we're, uh, we're trying. We're trying to get things back on, back on track. So thank you very much to our awesome listeners, and we look forward to hearing, well, for you to hear us next time. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Yeah.